Welcome to another Pro Video Coalition podcast. This is another uh, topic-based podcast, and we're going to be talking today about HDR. If you jump into the archives, you'll see uh, we've done a few topic-based ones over the last several months. About We talked about audio. We did one on LTO. We did one on um, codecs and remote editing. So we've been delving into just some specific topics um, a lot here lately. So HDR, we've got our good friend, uh, Mr. Gary Adcock, back with us. Gary, ha- uh, hello. Haven't talked to you in a while. Oh, thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Always fun. Glad you're uh, safe and healthy and well. We also have Mr. Philip Grossman coming to us from uh, Atlanta area. Philip, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you might recognize, everybody knows Gary. Gary, you know, Gary gets all, Gary gets around. But uh, you may recognize Philip's name if you're a Twitter and Instagram user, really on Instagram, because he does post tons of uh, photographs and video stuff from his many travels to a lot of uh, nuclear meltdown sites around the world. Is that, it's probably not as simple as, oh, you just go to all the nuclear meltdowns, but you kind of go to all the nuclear meltdowns. Yeah, yeah, Chernobyl, Fukushima, but also uh, a lot of uh, historical science stuff. So uh, the the um, abandoned Soviet space shuttles in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, we went to, well, attempted to go to Anthrax Island. So uh, sort of history, science, and engineering. Gotcha. So COVID does not scare you. No, no. I, I, you know, I learned from my, my, my Russian friends and Ukrainian friends, you just drink a lot of vodka and you're fine. Get rid of radiation, (laughs) get rid of COVID. You you think it's the the, uh, pharmaceutical companies would kind of be onto that, but maybe they're going to, uh, going to listen to this. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, the reason we want to talk about HCR, Gary is a general purpose knowledge of many things, production and post-production. So you can toss any topic out to Gary and he's going to be able to help us understand and learn better. Philip, on the other hand, not saying Philip doesn't know lots of stuff, but uh, you are a proud owner of a new uh, red, one of the early red Komodos, but you've been working with HDR for about as long as we've been able to kind of capture and grade HDR video. Is that, is that a safe thing Correct. to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I've been doing it since the, the still photography days. Um, and, and watching sort of as the HDR video came along. Uh, and then my, my professional career um, prior to COVID was uh, actually doing a lot with uh, the who's who of broadcasters around the world. And a lot of them were starting to look at this transition to HDR. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because HDR has been around, I think, a lot longer than people might think, because uh, photography was doing it for years and not, and not just your iPhone or your, your uh, camera phone doing some kind of multiple exposures and blending them together, but you could shoot, you could take your, your uh, still camera, your digital camera, and you could do a lot of bracketing and then bring that into Photoshop. I remember in Photoshop would do some, some uh, combining and making HDR images for you, or you could get some kind of uh, like Mac apps and I guess Windows apps too. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to back you up. I'm going to back you up right there, Scott. Uh We're going back much, much farther than that (laughs) because Ansel Adams developed a system called the zone zone system system. that, that, that has been the fundamental way to expose and monitor for HDR since he came up with it and wrote about it in the thirties. So this well, is not a new concept. <laughs> okay, and Mr. He in, Gary. He did but, it in black and white with a view camera and, and changed the processing to get long tonal range was, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's and that, actually, that actually brings up a really good point, Gary, that, that there's this confusion, sort of, um, that HDR means color. And then I've got so many more colors around HDR, where HDR really is talking about the dynamic range or the range of brights to darks and and you know answer right. obviously was doing it in black and white and that's and, right because we don't look at it that way but but because the camera manufacturers and the display manufacturers have gotten involved it's hdr plus wide color gamut so you get this right. wide gamut wide gamut color aspect of it that they've added on top of hdr to give it a more visual thing but the real reason you love hdr is because the contrast yep. it's snappy you can see an HDR set from across the Best Buy. You know, you can walk into a Fry's and see one from across the room and say, that set looks really good from here. And you're, you know, half a mile away. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so it is brightness contrast as well as, is, is, is the color range, are we saying it's much more saturated colors than, well, than you so, might be used so to seeing? It's, 
it's not – and everybody uses the term brightness, which is an easy easy term to use because we sort of see, well, the TV is brighter. But what it really means is from the brightest bright to the darkest dark, mm-hmm. there's this large range. And typically uh, it's measured in stops, and a stop is a doubling of the amount of light. So you know, from 1 to 2 is one stop, 2 to 4 is two stops, 4 to 8, 8 to 16, and so forth. Um that enables you to have this uh, uh, immense amount of contrast because I can have a really bright and a really dark uh, area in the scene. But the important thing is, is I have so much more range between the dark and the white to produce a lot more um, uh, very yeah subtleties. And so You're you see more details in the shadows, more details in the highlights. And then as Gary mentioned, we've now layered on top of this – this wide color gamut, or you'll hear people talk about Rec 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, you know, I'll say something sort of blasphemous. You can actually do HDR in the Rec 709 color space because okay. color and luminance are separate. Now, the Rec 709 SMPTE standard for distribution sort of squeezes that down and limits you on the distribution side to about six stops of dynamic range, five to six, six to seven stops of dynamic range. Um, but but because we now have so much more luminance, we're also able to produce a lot more colors in that same single image. And so they sort of conflated the two things, which is sort of a good thing to some extent because TVs have much more color and detail and you can have See, I, you know, I, I, subtleties. I find it interesting, Philip, because, you know, you look at what Netflix does, for example. I mean, they're the standard bearer right now for for pretty high quality HDR. <clears throat> and a I mean, lot and of their where, shows. Where else can you watch HDR? I mean, I know that like Amazon does. Amazon it. Prime, Hulu, but you know, right, YouTube. Right now, it's 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 OTT or or web distribution mm. is, re- and then I guess some disc distribution. The distribution via, say, a cable system or satellite system, the standard is for some of the underlying metadata elements that had to be in there have just sort of been ratified recently. So we haven't really had it from okay. a distribution standpoint from well, for this general television. So the, the winners right now have been the Netflix and the Amazons and, and that sort of that web distribution. Oh yeah. Without question. Yeah. But, 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 but it's also their distribution and you look at it and you look at how Hulu does imagery, how CBS All Access does imagery on the Star Trek stuff, how Netflix does Mindhunter and Warrior Nun and these lots of really, really dark stuff where they're using not the full contrast range, but the ability to have this this level of darkness that is, you know, so invocative. Invocates so much more than that. I was thinking about because I just finished. I burned through Warrior Nun over the weekend, um, and found it fascinating how much they use light and shade in that to really evoke the drama within. What is and that's show? one of the I've things I heard of it. Warrior Nun is this new Warrior one? Nun? It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah, it came out last week. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, what was the 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 the. the... Was it the last episode or next to last episode of Game of Thrones that everybody complained? It's so dark. Oh, oh my God. God. I can't see it. Yeah. yeah. And a lot my of that God. has to do with – now, granted, that's – I think the cinematographer was trying to drive for that. Um, but it wasn't distributed in HDR. If you saw that in HDR, I believe you would have a different view because you would have that subtlety that Gary mentioned in that shadow detail – that you're able to get in the HDR because, again, you have so much more room to encode the data. See, and that was just where you watched it at because if you watched it on cable, it was horrible. If you watched it through – I watched it through the HBO app on Apple TV and had – just a stunning image, hmm. you know, because so, that's how I've rigged up all my HDR stuff is yeah. in the Apple TV. Well, let's talk yeah, about so. that for a minute because as a, before we talk about the production side and how to and how to make it, let's talk about how to view it because right now that's the is it just as simple as going into Best Buy and uh, buying the cheapest Vizio TV and bringing it home and plugging it in and not, then I've got HDR. Not, not no. quite. So we we have. To, that, that, that's what they would lead you to believe. Yes. Yes. So there, there are two slash three standards depends on how you want to count them but in general terms there are there is what's called pq a perceptive quantization which is a, a way in which you encode this data to give you that high dynamic range and then you have hybrid log gamma hlg and then you have dolby vision which uses pq but does things slightly different and has some different secret sauce of dolby so when you go into the best buy 
you know, and you have to you have to buy decide. Typically, most sets will have HLG and um, it, they'll refer to it as HDR10 or HDR10 yeah. plus, which is okay. PQ, right. the perceptive quantization. You see HDR10 and you see Dolby Vision are the two consumer facing brand of consumer facing. Correct. Because HLG is a live broadcast standard. It's yep. a standard yep. for live transmission. So yep. people who think HLG is part of this are not taking into account that that's designed for as a broadcast standard so that you get the same luminance and color across a standard definition, a high definition, and a, uh, you know an HDR 4K broadcast. So it was, just it think was, of those as separate things. Yeah. yeah, it was theoretically HLG was designed to be as backwards compatible, but it's not quite 100% backwards <laughs> compatible, and, and it doesn't quite give you everything that the PQ or the Dolby Vision gives you. Uh, the funny thing is, you know, and I, I was doing some research and I was doing a presentation for Simpty in Atlanta, and one of the things I found, what, so the, the things that differentiate the PQ from the HLG is this concept of what they call metadata. There's metadata, whether it's static, which means it's set at the very beginning of the, of the transmission or starting of the show, or dynamic, which means it can change on a frame by frame level, or if it or it can change on a um, on a scene by scene level, and it just basically helps the television or monitor figure out what's going on and how to adjust the brightness, the luminances within that scene. So, so uh, what, let me stop you a second. That would be metadata set at the encoding level. So when it gets back to your TV, you're saying that metadata is telling your TV exactly what. To do. Correct. Correct. So what what happens is there's there's sort of this standard that says an HDR TV has to be able to do a thousand nits. Nits is just a, a level of brightness. Um, and your current SDR TV is about a hundred nits to give you a a, mm -hmm. a, a a frame of reference. Um, not every manufacturer can do a thousand nits. They may only be able to do eight hundred nits or six fifty nits, or maybe they can go to twelve hundred nits. So what what this metadata that comes down the pipe basically has to have a few static pieces of information. One is what's that it's PQ to begin with, obviously, and tell it what kind of HDR. And it has to be able to tell you what the mastering monitor was. Was this master on a monitor that was four thousand nits, two thousand nits, a thousand nits? Um, and then the color space, is it rec 2020 or is it rec 709 or DCI P3, whatever it is. The thing I found, and, and, and that's the whole thing about, well, we have to have, and then there's also this, this, um, um, metadata, which sort of says what's the brightest pixel and what's the average pixel, mm -hmm. um, within that, within the scene or within the entire program. And that's one of the reasons we've said that PQ really isn't for live television because, I can't tell you what the brightest pixel is th for the entire program until I've had the entire program. Um, so in live, I could never really tell you that. What I found in doing my research is that most television manufacturers ignore that data. In fact, some of the, the um, uh, Blu-ray discs that are mastered don't have any of the metadata other than that it's rec it has to have the color space and it has to tell you what the mastering monitor is. Other than that, it ignores this other metadata. So in theory, you could do a live broadcast that has that information. The problem has been is that the televisions and the and the distributors, the Comcast of the world, there hasn't been a standard on where do I put that data. So when I'm lo looking at a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu, is that is that metadata? Is the TV the TV is interpreting that metadata? Correct. But it, it, but if if you have a situation where the metadata is not there, is it just set to like a default? Correct. Correct. It's from the TV that, or, or where does it get it? The, the TV. So the TV is it, again. It has to know what the mastering monitor was, and and even there, it doesn't necessarily have to know. But it has to know the color space. At that point in time, the TV just says, "Well, the brightest I can go is eight thousand nits, so I'm going to adjust my curve. Excuse me, eight hundred nits. So I'm going to adjust my curve as eight hundred is to a thousand, and make okay. all the other adjustments there." It's sort of like you go into your parents' home and they've got the motion flow on and they've got the brightness <laughs> yeah. turned the whole way up, the saturation. There's no way to control what your parents do. Well, sort of this way that the movie makers, the cinematographers want to sort of control what that image looks like. But the television manufacturers are the ones who sort of – and the consumer at the end of the day has the, has the total control over what that looks like. So is it going to be a perfect image? No. 
is it going to be better than standard uh, uh, dynamic range? Yes. Okay. So it sounds to me like I have a, um, well, I, for example, I've got a, a, a new Asus uh, Pro Art PV something, something or another. When I turn it on, it says HDR on or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think this is, this is not a, an HDR grading display. It's made more for artists and, and mm-hmm. Photoshop and they say for video people. But regardless, I plug one cable, Thunderbolt cable into my MacBook Pro. I cannot adjust anything on the monitor when it's running through Thunderbolt. It almost seems like that is the way we need displays to, to, to work is that I can't adjust anything internally. I can't do motion smoothing. Well, I can't adjust the brightness. Just give see, me a pipe. That's, that's what, that's what happens when you use a secondary device. If you use a Roku or an Apple TV, it does that. It takes over the device when you have it in HDR and it does not allow you to control the television set. It, it, well, you said I, I can't itself, go into my menu on my TV and, and start fussing around not, with all the, on the Apple TV, on the current 4K model, if you're using the ARC plug-in on your television set, the ARC plug-in, no, you cannot. It will not. It'll override what, whatever what is, settings what in the What is the television. ARC plug-in? Is that the uh, it's audio it's return plug-in. channel? Yeah, it's the audio. It's audio return, return channel. It's just it's a way for the TV to talk to communicate back with the device. device. Yep. And and that then controls it and doesn't allow it. Is that um, coming so over broke, the HDMI connection that I plug in right. from the Apple TV to the to the to my yes. Sony or my Vizio? Yes. Oh, okay. Well there I need an Apple TV then. Yeah. I just well, got a brand and, new and, Sony and, TV. It's all that shit's supposed to be built in. But but all but, that shit's built in, but it doesn't you can't control it. That's part of the problem with all of this. And if you had an LG set, it would be different. If you got one of those TCL sets, which are really beautiful television sets, you've got to have two different apps to control different aspects of how the television works. Oh, Lord have so, mercy. So that's why you have a box on there to control it, just like you have a cable box. Mm-hmm. I have a box on there that can, that, that can maintain and monitor my signal through Netflix and everything else. I mean, I'm not going to give Sony my passwords to Netflix. <laughs> Apple and the funny has thing all is, when you, when you do have the ability to set it, and I experienced this myself. My wife was away for the weekend, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> always wanted to watch the late, the last Rambo movie that came out. I know oh, she yeah. didn't want to watch it, and it was That's HDR. And I had gone into my TV, and instead of leaving it on auto detect to figure it out, I was screwing around with something, and I don't remember if I set it to HLG or to PQ or which value I set it to. But the movie was an SDR, not HDR. And so I'm watching this movie, and I'm going, God, <laughs> it really looks like solarized almost. You know, like it's just really contrary. I'm like, God, this is horrible. The not only that, getting old. Also, yeah, I'm like, this something is wrong here. I just I can't watch this. I, I must have a bad encode of the movie or something. And then I'm like, well, let me go and look at the settings. So I went in and I flicked the settings out of the you know force it to be HDR into you know select based on the stream that's coming in, and the movie looked great. The movie was horrible, but the movie looked great. <laughs> yeah, the movie was horrible. God, was the movie bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, uh, and then, well, you know, take your buying advice, you know, from a podcast if you want, but what would you two recommend for a good sort of a good HDR home viewing experience that's not going out and buying the, you know, $8,000 LG OLED or something I, like I'm, that? I, I'm going to start, I'm going to start on this because I've had the experience of actually testing a bunch of, um, HDR compatible televisions for a manufacturer. Um, I got 14 of them at one point and was able to test all of them against each other. Um, I got LGs and Sonys and, and Panasonics and, and, you know, a whole bunch of brands I'd never heard of. Um, three of them stood out without question. And they were the LG, the Samsung L series and the Sony Bravias. Mm-hmm. If you want something affordable, the TCLs were stunning, but you have limited controls on those. They're Dolby compatible. You know, all of the televisions were Dolby compatible. Um, And it was one of those things that it got to the point on what your price point was. And if you were looking on a set, I purchased a 44-inch TCL set from my mother about a month ago, and it was under 300 U.S., I couldn't believe it. Yeah, they're it pretty cheap. cheap. I'm just looking right now they're, on... Uh, they're on... stunningly cheap. I have an LG in my office that's a 4K HDR, um, a 65. I paid 4200 for it. Um, uh, you know, I have a I have a 65-inch Bravia that was, that was a loan out to me 
that is still one of the finest televisions I've had in a long time. But it's a matter of what you're looking for in cost and performance. So and, but, and go ahead. Well, I say, would, would you then say, okay, don't use the internal built-in Netflix and Amazon apps that are in the in the set, but go out and get an Apple an Apple TV? Is that kind of the best? I don't use the internal apps on any television I own. Why not? Yeah, uh, old habits. <laughs> for, me, for me, it is. I'm not going to replace my TV every 18 months, and the Apple TV gets updated, the Roku's get updated, it gets new technologies, and the chipsets that go into these TVs, although they're they're fairly decent nowadays, they're not going to last. You know, to be able to handle that, the, the the multiple transitions that happen in those sort of outboard apps or outboard uh, um, pieces of hardware. So for me. I don't. I never use the internal stuff. It's always going to be. I'm a big Apple TV person, so I'm going to use the Apple TV as my sort of third party. Uh, and, and, and the other reason too is cost. I mean, the yep. Apple TVs are two and three hundred bucks. Yep. Replacing the television sets two or three thousand. Yep. And uh, I can well, replace my. I can replace my box. Yeah. yeah. Well. Well. But then, but then you only have so many controls in the TCL. I'm actually going to be screwing with one this weekend at my mother's house, and I'm not looking forward to it. I'm taking a Windows laptop, an Android phone, and my Mac down to be able to control her television. For me, looking at a TV, because I, you know, I've, I, I, I decided to go out and buy an HDR TV. Again, my wife was away for the weekend, and she had been complaining that the TV in the bedroom was too big. So I'm like, I'm going to go get a smaller TV. Of course, at that time, the smallest TV you could get that was HDR was 43 inches by Sony. <laughs> Um, there's so many more to choose from now. Uh, it, the, the key is you need to have, you know, HDR 10, 10 plus, preferably Dolby vision. And if you can get HLG as well, HLG is going to be a transitioning co uh, form of, of HDR. I think it will, it'll be around with us for well, the next well, three think, to I, so many years, but once, yeah, once I'm we get live and all the others, yeah. you're not gonna I think, I think the Dolby is the standard that everybody if, if, you know, I'm one of those ones that Dolby something everybody recognizes. It's a name that we're all familiar with with audio. And nobody and wants else. to pay the licensing. No manufacturer wants to pay the licensing. Uh, well, but that's but but that's true. But but the reality of it is is that that you know a whole bunch of people are just because yeah. if you're doing Netflix or something else, yep. they're going to insist on it. Yeah. And I think and you're going to have HDR 10 and Dolby are going to be the two because they're close enough. The reality is that. The uh, PQ is the same. The color space is going to be the same. The differentiation is the metadata and how it utilizes that metadata. And those manufacturers that, that want to pay for the Dolby licensing, they're going to do that. And the consumers who want that Dolby standard, because what Dolby does is it says your TV will meet these specifications so that they know the image is going to be what it needs to be. The HDR10 world it is. Here's what we say it should be and do the best you can. Gotcha. So, uh, but you'll need at least HDR10 and Dolby Vision, I think. All right, let's jump past the uh, home entertainment viewing aspect of it and talk a little bit about like cap, how do you make HDR? And because I, I have had clients ask about, hey, I'm, I want to start working HDR, and and I don't think it's quite as simple as 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 that. Um, Capturing oh. it is actually relatively easy today, depending on the camera. Yeah, exactly. I'm, you're I'm you're a jumping. Yeah, your requirement for delivery HDR is you have to have at least 10 stops of dynamic range and typically the Rec 2020 color space or something. Uh, P3. 7 or 9, yeah, P3. P3. Yep. But, but and, and I'm going to jump in here. Yep. And all those people that think that they're getting 10 bits in, in H.264 records on their Canon cameras, wrong. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. okay, so you have to, and, and you're get and you may be getting it from a color space, but you're not getting it from a dynamic range, and that's right. really what you need to have. And like we said in the past with stills, it was I would take two or three stills to create this high dynamic image right. because our sensors weren't able to capture that many stops of dynamic range. We now have, and it's going to be more on the cinema cameras. Um, that are going to be, you know, the, 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 the Sony Venice and the, the red family and the, the Aries, they're all going to be that 12 to 14 to 16 stops. And usually about 14 is the average on those kind of cameras. So that's going to give you plenty of dynamic range to be actually produce the HDR or capture the HDR. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, trying to do it on your Canon still camera or your GH five or any of those, eh, Technically, well, like, you're going to be close to the to the B ten stops. Well, B and eight says uh, you'll be well off with something like a Sony A7S II or a Panasonic GH5. 
yeah. and and a recorder. They always add that part to it. Now, right. the, now the GH5 and the XT3, XT4s from Fujian, and those that do H.265 recording are actually recording 10-bit. Yep. But if you're recording in H.264, it's almost always 8-bit, even though the codec specifies that it could be 10. Most of the manufacturers cheaped out and use the 8-bit compression mm -hmm. file. Yep. And if you're in using 8-bit compression, you won't be able to do it yep. in any way, shape, or form. Yep. So, or, so a yeah. lot of formats, and there's a lot of other formats to do that. Um, XAVC does not always do this. You know, um, When you look at the camera codecs, you have to be very, very careful with the lightweight Canon codecs, the lightweight Sony codecs, the lightweight Panasonic codecs, yeah. not recording in anything more than 8-bit. Yeah, you it, have it, to have it a minimum of 10 bits. Yeah, because if it, a rule of thumb, so you, mostly we always talk about 8-bit being the color, 10-bit being the color, but it's mm -hmm. also the luminance level. So roughly 10 bits is 10 stops of dynamic range. Yeah, not exactly, but for a rule of thumb uh, perspective, that gives you enough range in your luminance values to be able to capture 10 stops of dynamic range, which is the minimum you need for H or the minimum that the HDR spec, uh, distribution spec uh, requires is 10 stops of dynamic range. So yeah, to Gary's point, if you aren't recording in, you know, if it's 8.264 or 65, 65 by default is 10 bit, 64 can be 10 bit or 8 bit. A lot of people default to 8-bit because it makes the almost font everyone smaller. almost yep. everyone defaults to 8-bit. Yeah, there's yep. I can I can count the exceptions on one hand, yep. minus my thumb. <laughs> yeah. So so modern you know high end modern cameras they they weren't magically uh, they didn't come out with new models that said okay these now can capture an HDR. It's just a matter of capturing high quality codecs, 10-bit codecs with big sensors with good dynamic range yep. to get the and, data in the in the captured image that you can then manipulate in right. post well, to make and, and they started capturing in log so right. log was just a way of really stretching that dynamic range so you yeah. have to have the sensor that can capture it then you have to have a codec to be able to record it to or mm -hmm. take that electrical data optical electrical data and turn it into ones and zeros mathematically that models sort of the human visual system and so a lot of manufacturers sony and red and 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 r and everybody came up with this log format that really sort of helps them get all that data that's necessary to be able to do hdr and of course we've been doing it for a long time we just didn't call it hdr now we have a standard that really sort of specifies how the stuff's going to be encoded and distributed Gotcha. Okay, so we have we've we've we have captured. Uh, we've got a brand new red camera, and we've, we're capturing in red code or an Alexa that's going to ProRes four 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 or ProRes. Was it? Is it ProRes SQ? Even regular ProRes. Yeah. Even regular. Even even yeah. ProRes HQ is actually you know, like technically yep. HDR. Yeah, but yeah. what's that? What's that? What's was the newest ProRes they came out with? It was b b oh four 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 XQ. Yeah, XQ. Yeah. Okay, so so we've got we've captured the media now that we know is, is in log and we can get HDR out of it. Yeah, that's when it comes to how you grade the image to be able to get HDR out of that. But that's not as simple as just. Is it a plug-in in Final Cut and Premiere that I can throw on and say, so it, give me it, HDR? <laughs> so I, we, I have this argument a lot with friends because I, I do probably, A lot with me, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I can tell you, it, when I'm in Final Cut, sometimes in Premiere, there's like a checkbox somewhere in there that says, like, check for HDR. This is a yeah, number right. of fun. Importantly, it is, no, no, there is. Yeah, no, no, there is a checkbox in Premiere, Scott. I know. And the great thing is, is that if you miss one... The problem is in Premiere, you've got to check every little box on every clip. If you yeah. miss one checkbox on one clip in Premiere, the, the default of the timeline defaults out of HDR. It's just annoying yeah, as hell. Yeah, and it's one of those things that it's there. And in Final Cut, it's a little less complicated, but just still is convoluted. Yeah. Resolve seems to be the only company out there for a an inexpensive NLE that gets it and makes it easy one but one button clickable. The yeah, only I mean, problem with that is I switched but, uh, two years ago, three years, almost three years ago, from Premiere to Final, or excuse me, to uh, Resolve for that reason. It was just so convoluted in trying to get a, an HDR output from Premiere, and I've never looked back. And Resolve is just, and, you know, well, and the, and, above well, the, the one, right now. Yeah, the one thing we have to say to the listeners, though, is understand that the free version of Resolve does not do right. full HDR capability, does not have uh, full HDR capabilities. You have to get the studio version of Resolve to do this. If you have a Blackmagic product, 
chances are you've got a, a, a resolve key. It's only $300. It's worth it to be able to get the, the HDR and the noise reduction um, aspects of, of resolve. But right. that's one of the things to add on here is that you can't do full HDR mm. workflows in right. the free version of Resolve. And more importantly, you have to have a monitor that supports it. Well, okay, hang on. Let's, so let's, let's talk yeah, about workflow. Monitor plugged into your computer, you really can't do HDR. All right, we'll get to monitors in a second. Yeah. Let's first talk about the uh, mechanics of how to create the HDR in in Resolve, for for, for example. It's right. it's um you know if I if I have an image and I have my scopes up and I have my mouse and my lumetri panel or whatever, you can uh, go into your color wheels and you can attempt to make a very contrasty image that has very bright brights and very dark darks, but and you can say, oh, look, the dynamic range of that is I just made great high dynamic range from how I twisted the, the, the dials of yep. the color wheels. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're what, in DIT. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, man. We're going to have another podcast. Sorry. I'll invite some of them on. Um, yeah. what, what is it that makes that makes it HDR? How do I know I'm grading HD? Like, what is the thing that when I make that checkbox that's making it do something so, different. So the, the first thing is that you have to determine whether you want to do is HLG or PQ. So let's make it simple. Just say PQ, which means that I'm going to take all of my data that's encoded and follow the PQ curve, the electrical optical transformation or optical electrical transformation, depending on where you are in the flow. But basically saying that this is how all this data is going. So in, in, Regular SDR work, you're using a gamma curve um, to sort of mimic the way the visual, the human visual system works. And the whole reason the gamma curve was designed was to say, well, I, I, I don't have enough room to encode all of this data linearly. So I'm going to, you know, come up with this gamma correction function that will save me space because eh, we really can't see a lot of stuff that's in the darks all that well, the, the differentiation. So that stuff will sort of clump together and I'll give a little more room for encoding stuff in the highlights. Mm -hmm. Well, PQ just takes that to a whole new level. So you have to tell your system you're working in PQ so that when it encodes the data, it has, there's always this little piece of metadata that's there in, in that file, whether you're doing it out, going out as pro, and you also have to pick a format that supports the, the, the HDR, mm -hmm. but supports that flag that says, this is PQ. In, in other words, what's the, the encoding curve that's used, PQ versus uh, gamma, two, uh, gamma 2, gamma 2.4 or HLG, as well as what's the color space. So that's really one of the most, and that's one of the things that took me a while when I was working with the different, and that's the biggest issue, as, as Gary mentioned, in, in premieres, there's a lot of different checkboxes you have to check to make sure the system knows how to write that file. Okay. Not only write it, but encode it so that it follows that PQ curve appropriately. It, it, and in Dolby Vision, actually, there's a whole nother level yeah. of stuff that goes on. There's now. actually an issue with Premiere where if you don't encode it properly, it doesn't render properly. So yeah. you're not getting it doesn't even if you don't activate the checkbox it doesn't even actually function properly within the application yeah. well, and that's a real problem you mentioned uh, <clears throat> rec 709 versus rec 2020 rec 2020 being the, the I, I want to call it the newer more advanced color space for hdr it, it's rec just the white space it's a wider color space. yeah i'm going to take this one phil because yeah. you're it's like it's one of those things that while it's your your neck of the woods or was yeah. The problem with 2020 is, is that we can't really display 2020. Yeah. 2020 is a laser-only color space right now. What do you the mean? The only thing, that, oh, like, like, oh, barcodes and barcodes and okay. and projection systems, or laser projection systems, are the only things that can show it right now. There is nothing other than a few custom, you know, prototype displays that have the capability of displaying the 2020 color space that we're building all this stuff in. Yep. So. What I tell people is, is like, yeah, well, 2020 is the holy grail, but P3 is here now, and yeah. you can get a monitor. I mean, my Mac laptop has 97% of P3 color space. Yeah, exactly. So, I do all my and, stuff. And in your P3 your new iMac, your new iMac is 98% of the P3 color space. So you know, you have to look at it that way, and you work inside the P3 color space, and then say, just render in 2020. Yeah. And, so it, and there's. Go ahead, Scott. Well, so, so when, when you're all right, so we know, we know we're we're in P3. We're going to work in Resolve because it's that's a lot of stuff better. You guys mentioned um, uh, 
one reason to get the Resolve Studio is it's got HDR scope. So is is, is your HDR it's scope? It's as easy as it's easy as right clicking and saying HDR scope and setting what your luminance level is. Yep. Traditionally, it defaults to a thousand. You can actually tell it to be two thousand, four thousand, eight thousand, up to ten thousand, which is the spec in in Dolby. Um, there's some issues with going that high for people who don't understand it. I tell people if you set your scopes in HDR to a thousand. You're yep. going to cover 90% of the content you're doing right now. Yep. And that's how you start working backwards from that. It's not building to the future. It's building to what you can deliver right now, what your television gotcha. set can hold. But you're, so, with the, the scopes themselves, it's not a new HDR scope. It's just taking the existing just scopes a bigger that range. you know yeah, that gives you more it's, range. It's, okay. it's giving you the additional metadata and the ability to read and write and control that metadata. Yep. That's and, what it's and doing. It's, and the scope is, is, again, going off for that PQ curve instead of a gamma correction. So it's not a linear straight line. I'm not just going, well, my old scopes went to 100, and these now go to 11 or go to a, you know, 1,000 <laughs> well, in a straight line. There's a mathematical equation for how that works to get you to 1,000. Right. Scott, think of it as, as simpty versus, versus full range. As you moved in the SMPTE range, it would always roll off a little bit before it cut off mm -hmm. because you'd never lose the highlights. Um, and it would allow you to hold a highlight at super white or super black because of the roll off in SMPTE. Whereas if you used full range, it would clip at either end. Gotcha. So you have to think about it that way. By allowing PQ to control how the curve is, you're basically using the video signal pathway to control the limits um, it, it, visually for you to understand what's going on. It's not really changing anything. It's just giving you that, that the visualization of that. And this is where HDR is so powerful because you can then now, you know, within Resolve, be able to take this, build a file, and be able to output it on a television set if you have the proper tools, meaning the device that can send data over HDMI, like an AGA or Black, in this case, it has to be a Black Magic box. Where the Black Magic set, um, uh, cards will actually allow you to send that HDR metadata over the HDMI to your television set and get true HDR performance from a consumer range set. And so that so that's actually one of the interesting things. So when I started this journey in, in learning to grade, um, one of the things I had issues with is, okay, how do I set up my grading environment, and I'm using a, a, a computer monitor to do it as opposed to a grading monitor. But my, my computer monitor is 1,000 nit, to, you know, million to one content. It has all the requirements and it has the, the rec 2020 to 83% and 99 or 98% P3 it has all those things. I was like, well, how do I tell it to go HDR, not HDR? And that's where the application comes in. Cause the application, it doesn't, the monitor doesn't care. It's when you set it in the HDR, in the HDR mode, it's looking for that metadata. Well, that metadata is just saying what's the max and mins. So in Resolve, I can actually, to Gary's point, I set what my max and mins are. I set my max. And so the monitor matches what I'm doing at that point in time when I'm doing my grading. So it doesn't really have to have any of that metadata because the application is telling the monitor what that pixel color should be. It's just, it's, it's not saying you need to adjust it plus or minus X because my metadata says X and my monitor can only do Y. I know what my monitor can do. So I've set my software to match my monitor. Okay, well, all right, so let's let's transition to monitoring because that was that's a, an important topic. Um, you, you can't just do HDR grading on any, any <coughs> monitor, right? You got to have no, an HDR monitor. But correct. if you Google correct. HDR grading monitor, you're going to come across twenty five, thirty thousand uh, dollar, you know, uh, Sony's and Flanders and uh, yep. Canons and whatnot. What? Is, and is and you're your also only option? across 2,500 different monitors that all say HDR. And one of the things that you'll look, you know, and you go to B&H and you look and you, you type in, I want an HDR <laughs> monitor, and you'll get this list of monitors. But if you look, there'll be like maximum brightness is 350 candela per meter square, which is effectively a nit, 350 nits. Well, that's, you need a thousand nits. So they're, they're sort of doing, I hate that. I hate to call it a LUT, but it's sort of like a LUT. They're trying, they have some built-in software in the monitor that attempts to make it look HDR-ish, but it's not a true HDR monitor. True HDR monitor has to have a thousand nits and a million to one contrast ratio. I think it's a million to one contrast ratio is the minimum. So- 100,000 to one is the minimum. 100,000 to one, that's right. 100,000 to one. Million, so, to, million, to one million to one is OLEDs. 100,000 to one is uh, LCDs. LEDs. LEDs, LCDs. Yeah. Yep. So 
there are there, unfortunately now there are quite a few pretty decent computer monitors that match the spec. Also has to be a 10-bit monitor. You also see a lot of these 8-bit with FRC, which is just a way of sort of making 8-bit sort of look like 10-bit, but you need a true 10-bit monitor. Mm -hmm. um, so you can actually get a decent, uh, you know, I won't call it a grading monitor, but for the work that I do, it's close enough for jazz, as they say, for 1000 to $2,000 range, usually they're in about the $1,500 range. If yeah. you're working, if you're working on a on a uh, a big budget film or something, obviously you need to be a hundred percent accurate. That's when you need your Sony's and your Flanders because yeah. you're setting the standard that all the other monitors have to match. I'm getting within ninety percent of that, but then let's say I put a display it on a TV that only gets to eighty percent. So there's a delta between the ninety percent perfect plus the eighty percent that that monitor can do that can start to you know, change the way that image looks. Is yeah. it going to look bad? No. Most people would not see the difference. Um, my parents would not see the difference. My wife <laughs> see the difference. But obviously, if you're uh, doing a big budget, you need to have a a, a, a uh, high watermark that is the perfect rendition that everything can match to. Well, I think when you walk around the NAB show floor, for example, you'll see you'll see the BenQs and the uh, EZOs, E-I-Z-O, and the Asuses, and, and even like the new uh, Apple monitor, the um, Pro Display XDR. Like those are, they will all sell you an HDR monitor. And it, it, is that the kind of, you know, that's that's different than going and buying the Dell from, you know, the, the $199 Dell from Office Depot. Right, those right. Those are more right. expensive, but they're not $10,000. So is that the kind Correct. of range right. that... And I have a Dell UltraSharp, which was Dell's first uh, foray into the HDR monitor world. And it's a true 10-bit panel, mm -hmm. 100,000 to 1. It is uh, 1,000 nits. So one of the other interesting things is so you'll hear this 1,000 nits. So the question that comes up is, can it do 1,000 nits across the entire panel? <laughs> a thousand nits just within a small one inch oh, by yeah. one inch area, um, and that sort of that that was that sort of trick that a lot of these monitor manufacturers are playing early on was oh yeah I can do a thousand nits yeah but it's in you know it's like three pixels that's all I can really get up to a thousand three nits, pixels for ten sec for oh. six seconds yeah yeah that, that's the nice thing about I think if I'm not mistaken Gary the new Apple monitor can do the sixteen hundred across the whole monitor right. 1600 across the whole monitor yep. but the problem is it's using blue leds and they have yeah. to be filtered yeah. so there's there's got to be some kind of color conversion going on there that you're not thinking about that yeah. that i find kind of weird yeah um you know i have an asus that's the pre-version of the one that scott has um and they're probably some of the best monitors i've yep. run across for that kind of brightness and everything but but i gotta say working in an hdr monitor is really difficult in a dark room at night when you're typing. Yep. Very bright, yes. I, I, yep. I have a 5% setting on mine for that reason that takes it all the way down to 5% because you're staring at a white screen trying to type at night in a dark room. You're, it's like staring into the sun. You got to put, gotta put uh, uh, sunblock on. <laughs> SPF 30. <laughs> Okay, so we that's, we've, that's why that you know I always joke that the Dolby spec goes to ten thousand. Who the heck is going to get a ten thousand nit monitor? Right. You know, the only place those the only place those work at is outdoors. Yes. And the yeah. ten thousand the ten thousand spec is for outdoor laser broadcast. And right. I can assure you, if you've ever seen one, it's worth it. But yeah. but the reality of it is is that who in the hell wants to go see see stuff like that outdoors in the daylight. I want to be in darkness. <laughs> yeah, I want right. to be able to see the luminance and all of that. So, okay, so I we, mean, we're, we're just conditioned to being in dark rooms to view that kind of stuff. We've shot uh, good good uh, log material on our super, pretty decent high-end camera. We've got it in, in Resolve because we know that's a good place to work, work with HDR. We've got a good... Um, you know, not the super high-end reference display, but we've got a good... Uh, I, I, I don't want to say computer display. I'm not sure what the term is to use for... These monitors we're talking I just about. Call it, it's a color calibrated, and maybe we come up with a term. It's a you know dynamic range calibrated monitor. Just yeah. like we have color calibrated monitors. So we've got that kind of monitor. Is there uh, are these Thunderbolt three? Is because I've always heard talk about and Gary, you and I have talked about this. The cable and the connection between your display and what is sending that HDR signal to the display. It's not just a cheap old. Uh, can any HDMI cable work? Because if it's to your computer, I assume Thunderbolt three is going to work. But what, what about the connections? Well, this, the, the connection is a big deal. The Thunderbolt connection is always going to give you DisplayPort, which is always going to be 10-bit. Yep. HDMI is not. Okay. 
Thunderbolt that three, right? You're, we're talking Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt three two, here. Thunderbolt two or three. It doesn't okay. matter. Thunderbolt okay. two or three. All right. Both of them. Any Thunderbolt signal is going to supply to the display a DisplayPort compatible file and and signal process. That's a 10-bit base file because DisplayPort wants that by default. So the Thunderbolt protocol, even back all the way to Thunderbolt 1, was always to, to send down the Thunderbolt pipeway to a display, DisplayPort information, which needs to be 10-bit by default. Yep. So you've been you've been that way for a while. So the Thunderbolt displays actually give you true 10-bit information all the time. You get into HDMI, you get into HDMI, whether it's a 1.3 cable, a 1.4 cable, it is a 2.0 cable, is there 2.1 cables? There's those are just now starting to come out. So you never have any idea of what the cable is. Mm -hmm. And usually if you buy a cheap one, it's not what you think it is. Right. Most most of the cheap cables are 1.1 or 1.2 and don't even support things like, oh. Um, you know, stereoscopic and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the cabling is a real issue on HDMI because you never have any idea. And worse than that, you don't have any idea what the connector is. The connector on your end might be right, but the connector on the other end might not be. And, yeah. and if the connectors on the cables don't support the bandwidth or, or the file formats that you're sending through, the metadata doesn't pass through. And until we got to HDMI 1.4a, there was no metadata on the cable for right. all intents and purposes. So you have to have at least a 1.4A cable to get the metadata. But if you want true performance, you have to go to HDMI 2.0 or 2.1, which is the current shipping standard. Yeah, <laughs> and, you, and you, it gets you more confusing because you have 20A and 20B. And they're effectively the same for the most part. It's the oh, difference man. what metadata gets carried over. But the reality is if it's a 2.0 cable, and you and you are doing a controlled environment. In other words, you're in DaVinci. You're letting DaVinci control everything. You don't have to worry about the metadata. But to Gary's point, you're much better off just using DisplayPort, which the, the easiest way to look at DisplayPort versus HDMI. DisplayPort is the professional interface. DisplayPort, or excuse me, HDMI is the consumer version of that. So if you're in the DisplayPort, one, was it 1.4, I guess, is the latest, um, you, you're fine. You'll be able uh, to. To... 2.2.0 is shipping now. Shipping now? Okay, yeah. Yep. Just started shipping um, yep. um, this if week. If you're 1.4 above, you'll, you'll, you're fine on this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it really, once you get above 1.4 to 2.0, and the same with all the each, it's just a matter of bandwidth and what it supports. They'll all do you know 4K, It's but we're now starting to get 5K, 6K, 8K monitors, um, in which case you need to go to the next standard just to support the bandwidth. So, well, and the other thing to do is cable length. That's, yep. This is a big issue, and people don't take into account cable link. There were a whole bunch of people I posted online last week because Apple released the the high-performance Thunderbolt 3 cable for the display at the Apple Store. It's two meters long, um, or three meters long, and it's $120. And people were outraged at that. And I went, nope, sounds about right to me for being a three-meter cable to be able to support a 40-gigabit bandwidth over the length of it. Well, you're doing it has to be some... High end stuff, so I, I, I you right. know, I would think that it needs to, the shielding is a big deal and it has to do that. But, but what we're talking about is just making cabling that's supporting it. And, yep. and with HDMI, everybody buys cheap cables, yeah, they are not going to be to spec. Monster yep. cable, monster cables yeah. aren't cheap, and 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 any HDMI cable longer than three meters is going to lose signal, mm. period. Yeah, you, you want to do 4K 60, you know, with HDR. Two max. <laughs> you know, you want to go 50 feet. You have to, or at 25 feet, you have to have an active cable at that point in time. Or fiber. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. I mean, that's the thing that people understand is, is that an HDMI is one of the worst at this. HDMI actually drop bits, drops bits, color and, and audio bits, the longer the cable gets. And it compensates in the, the error comp compression in the cable, but it literally starts dropping bits after a certain, you know, after two meters. And yep. you start getting, you know, I know everybody I know has got, you know, a five meter cable or six meter HDMI cable around. I actually put it on a scope one day because I use one in my office just for fun. And and what's going into one end was 10 bits and what coming out in the other was 7.2 bits. <laughs> <laughs> Party at Gary's uh, house, man. Yeah. Hey, bring your cables yeah, over. Yeah, boy, man, that's like, I like look at that went, oh, man, there goes my day. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we determined here that you can uh, you can capture the right media to, to make HDR. You can grade it right. You can view it without totally breaking the bank. So um, 
where where is the outlet now besides Netflix and Amazon? You know, is is there a reason for corporate video people to decide to start doing their stuff in HDR? Is there a reason for music videos to shoot in HDR? So I would say so. It's one of those things. Is like, well, we couldn't do you know 4K displays for a long time. So why is everybody capturing in 4K? Well, it's sort of you know because all the cameras, huge... all the camera manufacturers. <laughs> Told you, you had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 4K. It's sort of it's sort of that future proof. Now now the issue becomes with you have to grade HDR and SDR separately, so you have you have to have ah. you know binary workflows. Okay, well, to let, do both. let's pause I, right there because I, I, that's something I was going to ask. I forgot about. If you've got all this stuff set up and you've done an HDR grade, is it just is it just a simple button to say make an SDR version? No. So in in the Dolby world, it is. A lot oh, easier, no. yeah. That and that's part of the value of the Dolby Vision model is that you can create the HDR grade and then they can then from that you can derive an SDR. Um, HDR ten you cannot do that. There's no solution necessarily to it. If you grade it as HDR, um, then you have to go back and regrade as SDR. HLG in theory. Because it's supposed Whoa. to be backwards compatible. If you grade in HDR, or excuse me, you grade in 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 their HDR HLG, then play it on an SDR TV, it should look perfectly fine. And of course, it does not. Hmm. Uh, your your whites become a little bit gray, and it really doesn't. Especially if the color space changes, it's going to really look funny. So um, you really can't. So then there's this argument: Well, do you do the HDR and derive the SDR? Or as one manufacturer says, no, do, their system is designed to do the SDR and create the HDR from it um, because SDR is still the primary moneymaker in the, in the um, uh, um, broadcast space. Mm -hmm. So and they and of course, they're selling a system that does that. It, it knows the incoming signal was SDR, excuse me, was HDR it brings you the SDR version and it allows you to grade it. And then the things you do in the SDR grade, it tries to figure out how to make the HDR changes similar. Mm -hmm. The reality mm -hmm. is if it, if it were me outside doing Dolby, I just do two different grades um, because they do have differences, especially if you're dealing in two different color spaces, it's a lot more work. Um, but that's just sort of what needs to be there. It, Dolby vision sort of solves that problem by, you know, sort of automating that SDR, but you still have to go in and tweak a little bit. It just, you know, gives you a good starting point in the, in the Dolby vision world. Well, so it sounds to me like, uh, since we're not in a place where HDR is super common everywhere, it's, it is kind of like the early days of, of 4k and uh, bigger mm -hmm. than bigger than HD. You can be in a place now where you can have the gear to do it. And YouTube will, you know, for example, will display it. It might be a good time to start kind of figuring it out. And you've got plenty of time to, to monkey yeah. around. And, and, and I, I would say capture it. First of all, if you can, if you can afford the camera to capture it, it, the HDR, capture the right dynamic range, the necessary stops, capture it that way. You're future-proofing. It's sort of like why do people, you know, I've been shooting 8K for, you know, four, almost five years now. People are, why are you shooting 8K? You can't display it anywhere. Well, there's a lot of benefits to it. Because I shoot for the future. <laughs> yeah, it's future-proofing because I have material from inside the Chernobyl nuclear reactor that's in 8K. So, you know, four years from now, somebody's like, I need 8K footage. I've well, I can, I can see the brilliance of that, but shooting the corporate CEO at 8K, I don't yeah. know, man. I don't know about there, that. There, there are benefits only from, from reframing, you know, that there used to be that motto, you know, 4K for 2K. Yeah. You shoot... Okay, so you could do some reframing and some other things and, and uh, post-stabilization. It's the same with the 8K for 4K from that perspective. But yeah, there's no real reason to, because usually you're shooting, you know, the CEO. It's only going to be good for a couple of years anyhow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's uh, current uh, information that's, you know, you don't need an 8K, you know, eight years from now. Um, so it's probably, it's not a necessity to do it then, but you know, there was, there was effect. Uh, I used to go and visit the, um, at the Sony studios, they had their digital motion picture, um, something other center yep. and okay. they used to, yep. And they used to do this demonstration it was the early days of 4k and they'd show two different shows. And I forget what the, the other show was, but they showed the Lucille ball show. 
So why did this one stand up so much better? Because they were shooting in the latest technology. Hmm. Uh, which I think was, was, yeah. Um, they shot and, film and transferred immediately to digital, and most digital. of the film got lost. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so the images look so much better than the older versions. And so it's sort of that same thing. So, you know, capture and HDR capture as much. It always, it's always better to capture more information. Mm-hmm. It's easier to throw stuff out than to make stuff up. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, get the camera, the best camera you can get that, you know, can capture at least that 10 stops of dynamic range. That way you have the material and you can always go back and regrade it later. That's one of the beauties of digital is it's, you know, yeah. locked. See, and that's, that's, that's actually the perfect part about this to end on. When you think about it, it's like, you know, I, I, I was one of the first guys. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of working on an article for Pro Video on my experience as one of the first Alexa users in America. Um, I was one of those guys who got an Alexa before everybody else did. I actually tested the ProRes functionality for the Alexa camera. And it's really wild because I looked at that content. I pulled it up a couple of years ago and, and looked at it again. And 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 it was really interesting because that was 2018. That was when Ari came out and said, everything we've done since we started has been in HDR. And I couldn't believe it. And I went back and pulled, you know, original content files up and, and went, hey, can I, wow, I can actually do this. this. This ProRes file actually has enough in it for me to do that. And that's the power of this. Um, and it's the power of what we keep talking about is shooting for the future. Because, Phil, you're the perfect example of, of, of how somebody goes and does things that nobody else ever thought of to go work in nuclear power plants and, you know, go shoot at Chernobyl and Fukushima before the TV show ever came out. Let's be real clear about that. You were doing this uh, almost a decade that before the television go. show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that, that, that before the t- Chernobyl television show came out, which you did have content in and was a, a reference for the film producers. Yeah. So. So your content lives longer than that. Anybody who's not thinking about the longevity of the quality of their content and not trying to capture it the highest quality is not thinking about how their future is going to respond. I mean, a perfect and, example. So, you know, to that point, Gary, I would, you know, recently those who followed what's going on in Chernobyl, because everybody sent me the article and it happened. There were these big four. <laughs> um, there was a, a children's camp. You're like, a, I know, a, guys, a, I yeah, know. A recreational camp that I shot. Uh, you know, these 90 little cabins with these beautiful, uh, you know, murals painted on the side. I shot it, oh, six years ago, 4K raw, came back with 20 terabytes of drives from that trip. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. It was right. burnt down this last summer. You know, I was I was in Kazakhstan and filmed the abandoned Soviet space shuttles. I have it in 8K. One of the original shuttles that actually went up into space that most Americans don't know, that was destroyed in 2000 with the building collapse. So if something were to happen to this piece of history, I've got it captured in 8K. So that, you know, that point of, you know, capture at the highest resolution you can for future proof. And, it, and I always tell you, it's not for my future. It's for people later on's future. Right. This material yeah. going to be around. Yeah, no, I think that is a great place to end on because I think that's a good, um, it, you know, it, it, it's there are people out there capturing me, producing media in general that are you. You don't know where and when the stuff that you've captured is going to be needed in 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 the future, and I, and I think that that's um, you know that's a that's the reason to capture it as good as you know as good as good as you can. I mean, let's let's admit though capturing at 8k and uh grading at eight you know doing all the best of the stuff is is it takes a little bit of cash it's different than just <laughs> yeah you know going out with the with the canon 5d and and um but um, I, I think 6k is the perfect resolution and i'm not just saying that because i have the new komodo and that's what i've been shooting on and my dsmc 8k has sort of been put <laughs> up on the shelf for a little while but i think 6k is the, the right resolution well, let's just let's just define to that you, you also have you do have a Komodo. It's in yeah. Grossman Red, gold. which is Grossman which gold. is Grossman Gold, which yeah. is which is the radioactive color used by the Soviet forces <laughs> during Chernobyl. So let's just let's just be really clear about your camera, Phil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, well, you know, it's uh, you, you gotta uh, so, somebody's got to get out there and, and and blaze the trail, and I think Philip's yeah. doing that, and it's. Uh, this new high, not just high dynamic range world, but high pixel world. There's a, there's a lot yep. going on. I'd love yeah. to, um, Philip, sometimes sit down maybe on another episode and chat about sort of your travel workflow and how you go about, sure. you know, 
moving those massive amounts of data and stuff um, around. I'd love to talk about that. Uh, stuff. Uh, he's got some great stories that I could lead you through them. I, uh, but the one about leaving the tripods behind for water. <laughs> yeah. Tripods and batteries in the desert of Uzbekistan so that I could survive. Oh, so well. It's a good story. So, so there would be water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're here with us. I'm glad you're glad yeah. you're back. All right, gentlemen. Thanks. You know, I'm sure that we uh, people will listen to this and they will have more questions about HCR because we didn't answer everything and there's and there's a lot to know. But hopefully we've kind of scratched the surface a little bit and um, answered a few questions. That was the whole whole point. So thanks for the uh, thanks for the chat. We we're yep. just over an hour, so we so we we're we're right at the edge. Good, perfect. All right, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks. Thanks. Joe. thanks.